I apologize for the technical difficulties. Uh, even when our internet is working just fine, uh, sometimes Grady is not working just fine. Uh, but it is good to see everyone here. It is a blessing to be here. Uh, what, what a privilege God has given us that, that we can be part of his family, uh, that we can come to him as our father, uh, praise him, pray to him knowing that he hears us, uh, that we can be brothers and sisters, that we can spend time such as this remembering the sacrifice that, that makes that relationship possible. We started last week uh, a series on evidences, and we really have a, a dual purpose for this. We are, first of all, trying to undergird our faith and strengthen our faith uh, in the foundation of our relationship with the Lord, but, but also trying to equip ourselves as we seek to spread the message of the gospel with others around us. In the world that we live in today, uh, a sizable group of people uh, have no religious affiliation, don't believe in the existence of a divine being, and even less people would believe in the deity of, of Jesus Christ. M many today believe that he is, is simply just a myth, in fact. And so as we seek to share the gospel with others, we, there's really three aspects to that that we mentioned last week, convincing, convicting, and converting. Uh, we can uh, appeal to the, the will and bring somebody unto conversion. We can appeal to the heart and convicting people of, of sin and their need for the Lord as we all have that need. But many times what's going to be the, the first step, kind of square one in sharing the gospel is convincing appealing to, to the mind and helping people to see the truth of the gospel. Last time we talked about what we see in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, that there are certain things we can know about God just from looking at the world around us. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through the things that are made. So we can know that there is a God. But if we want to know who that God is, then we're going to have to come to the scriptures. Simply looking at, at nature can bring us to theism, but not to Christianity. And so God has given us the scriptures in order to produce that faith within us. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so that's what I want to turn our attention to today, um, is the, the scriptures. We'll turn our attention from the witness of creation now to the witness of the scriptures. And... We'll get to a point where we'll talk about the divine inspiration of scriptures. Lord willing, uh, if things go to plan next week, we'll talk about divine inspiration. But this week, I want to I start a step earlier than that and simply ask the question, how do I know the Bible is reliable? That what it says about historical events, especially as it applies to the life of uh, and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how do I know that what it's saying is, in fact, true. We're going to focus on uh, the narrative sections of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're even going to see a little bit of Paul's witness in 1 Corinthians 15 that we just read about, uh, because we want to focus on the message of the gospel of Jesus, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. Can we trust what the scriptures say about Jesus? Should I be convinced uh, that what their witness says is, in fact, the truth. Well, the first thing that I think we can address is what is the intention of the witnesses? When Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, 
sat down and, and began to write what we have in our New Testament, was it genuinely their goal, their purpose, their intent to give us reliable history? Because if, if it wasn't, if they were just you know, writing down some, some nice fiction stories, some new legends and myth on, on which bring in this new religious philosophy, uh, well, then we, we kind of have to start before we even get started. But step one, I think we, we can see, was it their intent to be genuinely eyewitnesses, to, to proclaim their eyewitness? Look in John chapter 20 with me. In John chapter 20, John, as he nears the end of his gospel, look what he says in verse 30 and 31. John 20, 30 and 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What, what was John's intent here? You know, is he just saying that, you know, I, I hope you guys enjoy this story that I've come up with? No. Saying these things are written so that you may believe. In 1 John, uh, the first epistle that he writes in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he has some similar statements. He says in verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Later on in verse 3, he says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Is there any question that John's intent was to relay his personal eyewitness testimony? Not only did he see it, but he heard it, he touched it, he handled it, he experienced it. He's here claiming that the things that he is talking about are things that he has firsthand knowledge of. Peter makes a similar statement. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here, clearly, Peter claims to be an eyewitness. Is there any question that the writers of these documents at least claimed to be eyewitnesses, that it was their intent to pass on what they had seen and heard? And even for those writers of the New Testament that, that were not direct eyewitnesses, like Luke. Notice what Luke says at the beginning of his gospel. Turn to Luke chapter 1. And starting in verse 1, Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The New American Standard there in, in verse 3 says, I have investigated carefully these things. Uh, it says that you may know the exact truth in verse 4. Here, Luke is not claiming himself to be an eyewitness, but what he is claiming is that he has thoroughly investigated and talked to other eyewitnesses, and what he is declaring is what, what he has, uh, of course, received through the Spirit, but also through talking to people who were there and who saw those things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
shortly after the passage that Jonathan read for us, uh, in verse 14 and 15, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. If this is not the truth, if these things did not actually occur, Paul saying, just take this book and throw it out because it's not, any, it's not worth anything. Here, the, the value of what Paul is saying, the value of what all of the apostles are saying hinges on the fact that this is the truth, that they did see these things or they talked to witnesses who did see these things. And so really when we approach the scriptures, we, we have two options. Either this is in fact the truth and Jesus is the son of God. He is uh, who he, he claimed to be. He did work these miracles. He was risen from the grave on the third day. Or this is a bold-faced lie. Those are our two options. Because there is no question as we approach the scriptures that the writers intended to present legitimate historical testimony of the things that they had seen and heard. So maybe writing accurate history was their intent but were they successful at that? Are their testimonies consistent with the archeological evidence and the ancient historical documents that we have elsewhere? When we test their writings by all known historical facts of that time, um, do what they write, does what they write prove to be accurate in what they said? Well, let, let's first consider Luke. Um, and, and Luke is going to be an especially helpful example on this because Luke, as we saw from the beginning of his gospel, investigated these things. And, and he includes a lot of incidental historical details in his writings uh, that some of the others uh, might not. Uh, Sir William Ramsey, one of the foremost uh, archaeological authorities of the early 20th century on Asia Minor, states of Luke, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. In another place, uh, Sir William Ramsey says, In all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. And in fact, we, we can see this throughout Luke's writing. One, one area that we can see his accuracy is in his use of proper titles for rulers and government officials throughout uh, Luke and Acts. As Luke is writing in those two books, we, we see that he is extremely accurate from what we know through archaeology about the titles given to different uh, officials. And this was quite the feat because titles varied greatly from place to place in the ancient world. And not only that, but they varied greatly uh, over time. They changed quickly over time in different places. We see in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, he talks about Herod, uh, Philip, Tritonus, Licinius, that each of these are called tetrarchs in their respective areas. In Acts 13 and in Acts 18, he talks about Sergius Paulus uh, being a proconsul in Cyprus, also Galileo being a proconsul. Uh, in Acts 16 and verse 35, as he talks about Paul and Silas in Philippi, he talks about the praetors and lictors. Now, you may notice you won't necessarily see those words in your English translation. Many times uh, they take these Greek words and try to 
translate the, the sense of it, your version might say chief magistrates or policemen. Also in Acts 17 and verse 6, he talks about the politarchs in Thessalonica. Some versions say city authorities. He talks in Acts 28 about the first man or the leading man on the island of Malta. Also in Acts 28 and verse 16, uh, the Greek word is the stradopadark over uh, the prisoners in Rome. Uh, most versions might say captain of the guard. You see how many different titles in different places, and yet all of these are confirmed by history and by archaeology. In fact, there are some areas that uh, archaeologists thought Luke had got it wrong, that he had used the wrong term, and come to find out, as they uncovered more, they were wrong. Luke was the one who was right. Uh, and so you see how meticulous he was in, in every little detail and using these correct titles. Also, in Acts 27 and 28, when Luke is talking about the voyage of, of Paul, where he shipwrecked on his way to Rome, uh, a, a scholar named H.J. Holtzman says that those two chapters are one of the most instructive documents for the knowledge of ancient seamanship. <laughs> And so Luke and all these incidental details and the titles that he's using, the different things that he's talking about that are going on around him uh, is, as Sir William Ramsey said, uh, a historian of the first rank. And not only Luke, but we can also confirm uh, through archaeology the writings of John. John talks about Jacob's well in John 4, and we have uncovered that through archaeology. John in John 5 talks about the pool of Bethesda with its five porticos, where Jesus healed a lame man. And we have found that location, and it has five porticos, just like John said it did. Uh, the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9 and had him wash. We've uncovered that location. In John 19 and verse 13, the pavement where Jesus appeared before Pilate, we've uncovered a probable location for that as well. And so all of these different locations that John is talking about, well, as we dig and as we uncover in uh, archaeology, we find uh, that these things that are spoken of are legitimate. Even Paul, who certainly in his writings includes less narrative, as most of his uh, writings are, are written in epistle form, even his writings, we can see things that are confirmed through archaeology. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 23, as Paul is writing to Rome uh, from the city of Corinth, he writes about Erastus, the city treasurer, greeting the brethren in Rome. Well, archaeologists went to Corinth and they uncovered this paving stone on the road, uh, and the inscription says, Erastus, curator of public buildings, laid this pavement at his own expense. Uh, and so, as Paul talks about this city official, Erastus, well, we went to Corinth and we found there is somebody named Erastus who was a city official there as well. Uh, and so really all of the New Testament uh, gives us abundant opportunity to confirm what they're saying through archaeological evidence. And if the New Testament writers were so painstakingly accurate in reporting the incidental historical details, is it really reasonable to believe that they would fail to be accurate on matters which they considered to be of the greatest importance that they were addressing? Here, everything that we can see, everything that we can confirm, they were extremely painstakingly accurate in what they were saying. I think we can infer that their approach to the main focus of their history certainly would be the same.
So, yes, they appear to be historically accurate documents, but how do we know that they weren't just very cleverly constructed documents by Christians, maybe in later centuries, who looked back and kind of put together something that would be convincing? How do we know that the New Testament authors were even who they claimed to be? How do we know that Matthew wrote Matthew, or Mark wrote Mark, or Luke wrote Luke, or, and so on? Well, most modern scholars will even concede that all of these documents were written within the first century. Scholars today say that Matthew was written in 85 to 90 AD. Uh, Mark is estimated by most to be around 65 AD. Luke around 80 to 85. Uh, and John around 90 to 100 AD. Uh, Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians being about 55 AD as well. All within the first 50 to 60 years of Jesus' ministry. His death, burial, and resurrection. Why is that important? Well... Imagine today that somebody wrote a letter uh, and sent it out to a bunch of churches and, and signed my name at the bottom. And so they, they wrote this letter and they sent it out to Philadelphia and Harrisburg and Gettysburg and, and down to Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, eventually, word's going to get back to me that, hey, Grady, this, this letter is going around and it has your name on it. Did you write this? Well, if we can confirm that these documents were written within the time period that these people lived, certainly they would have had an opportunity to either confirm or deny whether they, in fact, did pin those books. Well, what kind of evidence do we have uh, that causes scholars to, to conclude that these were written within that time period? Well, first of all, we have manuscript evidence. Uh, and this is copies of these documents that we actually uh, have found portions of dating back to uh, most of them in the, in the second century AD. Uh, for John's gospel, you have fragments, Papyrus 52, uh, that go, is dated by scholars to be 125 AD. Matthew has uh, portions of its book in uh, Papyrus 104 that is dated to 150 AD. The entire book of 1 Corinthians, Papyrus 46, is dated to 200 AD. Uh, and Luke, portions of Luke in Papyrus 75, is dated to 175 to 225 AD. And also Mark, uh, actually, uh, at the time that I originally put this together, um, the oldest portion of Mark we had was Papyrus 45, uh, dated to 250 AD, just within the last two years. They have now authenticated uh, another portion of Mark, uh, which is Papyrus 137, that is dated as early as 150 AD. Um, and so all of these, uh, we have actual manuscripts that date back within the first hundred years after these uh, events. And yet in total, we have over 5,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible. Um, that date back within the first 400, 500 years after the time of Christ. So these are just our earliest uh, uh, manuscripts that scholars have, have tried to, to date uh, by different evidences. But not only do we have these early portions of manuscripts, we, we also have citation evidence. And this is other people writing, quoting from these documents. Now, if you're going to quote from a document, it has to already be in existence, right? 
Um, and when we look at what some call the early church fathers, we see many, many quotations from these documents that even predate some of the manuscripts that we have. Uh, and so you can, you can see this chart. We're mainly just focusing there on, on uh, Matthew through Acts and 1 Corinthians for our purposes today. Um, but you see that each one of these is quoted by, by Polycarp and 110 to 150 AD, and also quoted by Irenaeus later in 130 to 202 uh, AD. And what, what's interesting is history tells us that Polycarp actually was uh, a disciple or, or a student of the Apostle John. Uh, and then Irenaeus, his kind of second generation, was a, a student of Polycarp. Uh, and so you have kind of these people who actually knew the, the writers and those just a generation removed. And we, in total, Geisler and Nix tell us that we have an estimate 36,000 citations of the New Testament in the writings of the early church in the first 400 years after Christ's death. 36,000 quotations. Uh, here, Greenlee says, these quotations are so extensive that the New Testament could be virtually reconstructed from them without the use of New Testament manuscripts. The, the early writers quoted so prolifically from the New Testament documents that even if we didn't have manuscripts, you could almost piece together the entire New Testament from how much they quoted from it within these first few hundred years. And so scholars would not just have to be mistaken on the dating of the original New Testament documents, but, but the dating of thousands of surviving manuscripts and citations. And Irenaeus, who we said is just two generations removed from John the Apostle, states this in about 180 AD. He says, Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us the writing, uh, in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast, himself produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. So just two generations removed from John the Apostle himself, here we have Irenaeus saying that these documents were written by the people that they claimed to be written by. And so when, when you think, well, who, who should we uh, look to to tell us who actually wrote these documents? Scholars today that are, are removed by thousands of years or somebody that, that was actually just a couple generations removed. And so we have ample evidence that these documents were in fact written by who they claimed to be written by. But what if they are authentic, they are who they claim to be, and they're genuinely accurate, but maybe they're just clever false witnesses, or maybe these uh, apostles and, and writers were, were genuinely deceived about the things that they were saying. Well, there are too many witnesses for this to be plausible. Yes, maybe one or two witnesses, maybe they were deceived. Maybe one or two or three witnesses could have kind of collaborated together to come up with this hoax. But when we approach the Bible, we don't just have one or two witnesses. We have hundreds of witnesses. Because you have to remember that the Bible originally was not just one book. Our New Testament is made up of multiple 
books written by multiple writers. We have Matthew's witness. We have Mark's witness, which according to Irenaeus, uh, drew from, from Peter's influence. We have Luke, who stated that he investigated many witnesses. We have John's witness. Um, all of these writers as well reference many other individuals who were present to see Jesus' miracles who could either confirm or deny what they were saying. Think about all the people that Luke talked to as he investigated these things. They, many of them still living, would have been able to confirm, yes, that is what happened. No, that is not what happened. And notice again the passage that, that Jonathan read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 We'll start in, in verse 3. Here Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. How many witnesses does, does Paul call to the stand here? Well, he, he talks about 13 specific witnesses, and he talks about a, a group of over 500 brethren who saw Jesus all at once. And he says, many of them are still alive. Why is he saying that? You can go talk to them. You can ask them whether they saw that or not. This would be an extremely bold statement if Paul could not substantiate that these witnesses did, in fact, see what they said they did. You know, is it likely that 500 people were all deceived, that they all had kind of the same mass delusion? Um, or that they all con conspired together to come up with, with this masterful hoax? If the truth can be determined at the statement of two or three witnesses... Can it not be confirmed by over 500? And so throughout the scriptures, we have many different witnesses that are referred to that at the time of the writing of these documents would still be there to confirm or deny whether or not these things were in fact the truth. But the objection might be made, well, but, but those are just witnesses in the Bible, right? Uh, and you can't, you can't go to the Bible to, to prove it. All those people have a vested interest. Those are Christians. They're believers. Of course they're going to say that these things are true. They're not objective or dispassionate observers. Should we write off what they say to their own personal bias? Well, think about that for a moment. If you've seen somebody raised from the dead, how long are you going to remain a dispassionate witness? Are we asking for people who weren't convinced by what they saw? Certainly. If somebody has seen these things, we would expect that they are not going to remain a dispassionate witness for long. But even at that, we do have non-Christian witnesses that would corroborate these witnesses that we are pointing towards. Um, and even somebody like Paul the Apostle is an example of somebody who, who started out not being a believer, and yet we see the transformation in him being evidence that, that he was convinced, that he didn't remain a dispassionate witness. Uh, but we do have other figures um, that are not Christians, that don't have a vested interest in these things, and yet even in some cases in trying to disprove what was claimed, 
they corroborate the story of what the Bible is telling us. One that might be most well known is Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish writer who kind of defected from the Jewish nation to Rome. Uh, and he wrote a great deal about uh, Jewish history up into the time of, of Christ as well. F.F. Bruce says that Josephus references the Herods, the Roman emperors, Augustus, uh, Tiberius, Claudius, and the procurators of Judea, uh, the high priestly family, Annas, uh, Caiaphas, Ananias, and the rest, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so on. And so many things that we read about in our New Testament, uh, even the story in Acts chapter 12, where Herod is eaten from the inside with worms, uh, Josephus tells us about that in his history, uh, though he himself uh, did not claim to be a, a believer. And we have one, uh, one quotation of Josephus that I want to share, and there, there is some debate in the, the scholarly community about the legitimacy of this quote, but we'll talk about that in a moment. What, what it says as it stands here, Josephus says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life. Uh, he goes on to say, For the prophets of God have prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him, and the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now some contest this. They say, well, this is very out of character for Josephus. Uh, he doesn't claim to be a believer. Why would he say something like, um, if indeed one ought to call him a man? Well, what they claim is that a Christian editor came along later and inserted some of these phrases. Like, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Or um, in, in a passage that I, I left out in the middle there, he says, he won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. Well, liberal scholars would say, well, that, that wasn't Josephus. Somebody came along later and kind of inserted that. But what's not contested is that there was an original document that Josephus wrote, and even if these individual phrases aren't included, that some Christian editor did, in fact, come along later and insert those, the substance of his witness is still recognized as, as being from Josephus' mouth. And not only do we have Josephus, we have Cornelius Tacitus in 55 to 120 AD. He here is trying, uh, is telling us about Nero's attempt to relieve himself of, from the guilt of burning Rome, as some were accusing him of doing it. And it says here uh, in Tacitus' words, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, which would be another pronunciation for Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And so here Tacitus is clearly not in support of Christianity, but what he does tell us is that there was one called the Christ, who was crucified under the oversight of Pontius Pilate, uh, and that his followers, even though their, their leader had been crucified, continued to follow him even into that day. 
Let me show one other witness. Uh, and this is in the writings of Julius Africanus, who is, in fact, a Christian who wrote in, in 20, uh, uh, 220 AD. But he writes about uh, another writer that we no longer have uh, his documents named Thallus. And this is what he says about Thallus. He says, Thallus, in the third book of his histories, which scholars date to around 50 to 75 AD, uh, explains away this darkness, talking about the darkness at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonable as it seems to me. And so today, the writings of Thallus have been lost to history. We don't know where they are, but Julius Africanus here is addressing an argument that is being made by a non-Christian to try to disprove what was going on at the time of the crucifixion. Well, what does that tell us? There was something that needed to be disproved. <laughs> There, there was something out of character going on there uh, that Thallus felt like he needed to answer. And we can go to many others, Lucian, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, all from the second century, speak about some of these same things. Even the Jewish Talmud refers to Jesus as a false messiah who practiced sorcery and was the product of an illegitimate birth. What, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us he claimed to be the messiah, that he practiced sorcery. Evidently, there was some uh, pre presumably miraculous events going on um, that they are claiming were sorcery and that there was something suspect about his birth. And so what picture do we get of Jesus from these non-Christian witnesses? Well, he claimed to be the Christ. There was something sus suspect or unnatural about his birth. He was known as a miracle worker or sorcerer. He was crucified under the oversight of Pontius Pilate. There were unnatural happenings surrounding his death and burial. His followers claimed he had risen from the dead and continued to follow his teaching even after his execution. And so even if we don't look just at the biblical witnesses, we can look at the witnesses of history and see, yes, these historical events did happen. Uh, yes, they corroborate everything that the Bible does say. But let's return back to the witnesses of Scripture. Uh, what if this was a clever deception? Um, what if some were legitimately deceived and maybe just the inner circle kind of we're all part of composing this, this masterful hoax. Is that plausible? Well, I think we need to consider the motive of the witnesses. If they were, in fact, lying, if the inner circle of Jesus knew that this wasn't true, that this wasn't the case, what motive would they have to lie about these things? Would, would they have gained some type of, of monetary uh, wealth, from doing it? Well, no, certainly. We just read in uh, Acts chapter 3, Peter says, gold and silver I do not have. Uh, and later on in Acts chapter 8, when um, Simon, the sorcerer, tries to buy the gift of conferring the Holy Spirit, you know, that would have been a prime opportunity. They could have said, oh, we're, we're going to make a profit out of this. Yes, you can have it. Give me your money. But that's not what we see. They didn't gain any wealth. They lived lives of, of great poverty to a great extent. Did they gain any, any fame from these things? Well, any fame that they did receive was centuries after their deaths. Because in the society in which they lived, they were re rejected. Uh, they were looked down upon and ridiculed and persecuted by both the Jewish community and the Greek community. They didn't gain any great recognition from society from this at all. Uh, did they, you know 
gain some earthly indulgence from this? Well, no, they, they lived lives of, of purity uh, and self-sacrifice. What did they gain from their witness? Persecution is what they gained. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, the apostle, who himself could have had great standing among the Jewish community, left all of that to preach Christ. And what did he receive? Look here in verse 23. Um, he says, are they servants of Christ? I am more so. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. That's what Paul's life looked like. Because of his witness, for Christ. You know, you think if, if they knew it was all a lie, why would they continue to hold to that? Even after suffering all of these things. And Paul is not the only one. If we look at history, or at least what tra tradition tells us, nearly all the New Testament writers died for their faith. History tells us that Matthew was impaled and beheaded in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria behind horses until dead. Luke was hung in Thebes. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down. James was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. Paul was tortured and beheaded by Emperor Nero in Rome. Jude was shot multiple times with arrows. They didn't gain anything in an earthly sense from holding to this testimony. And lastly, I think we need to look at the effect of the witnesses. What was the result of their witness? It was the basis of the greatest religious movement the world has ever seen. If their testimony was false and had no convicting power, could Christianity have ever gotten off the ground? Was it just that first century society was such a, a fertile environment for a message such as this? Would that explain the message of the gospel creating what it has? Well, no. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 tells us that the gospel was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. To the Jews, the message was of a lowly Galilean with no formal education who condemned all the human traditions of the religious teachers and defied everything they expected the Messiah to be, ultimately dying on a cross. And he's the Son of God. To the Jews, he was a failed Messiah. He's a dead Messiah, right? What about the Greeks? Well, to the Greeks, this is a message of a Jewish peasant who is supposedly the son of the only true God, they're going to have to reject their entire pantheon. And despite his deity, he died a weak and shameful death as a criminal on a Roman cross. How do we explain the effect that the gospel has in that type of environment? The only thing that can explain the effect that their message has, that they continue to hold on to that message in the first place, 
with such reception was that it was, in fact, the truth. Brethren, it, it, to me, is, is ridiculous to think that a group of fishermen, a ragtag group of Jews could have come together and produced a hoax that would create the greatest religious movement the world has ever seen. No, the effect that their message has makes much more sense if we see that, yes, it was in fact true. That yes, they did see Jesus work those miracles. They did see the empty tomb. They did see him risen from the dead. And by the Holy Spirit, they were able to work signs and wonders to prove that their testimony was the truth. And so can we trust what the New Testament tells us about Jesus? I think from all of these things, we can see that, that just from a historical perspective, not even from an inspiration perspective, which we'll address next week, that the testimony that we read of Jesus is in fact, the truth, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he did rise from the grave and ascend into heaven, that he is king reigning at the right hand of God on high. And as such, he deserves your devotion. He deserves my devotion. And so as we encounter the truth about Jesus, just as, as Peter appealed in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost and in Acts 3 as we studied today, we, we need to do something with that message. It calls upon us to respond. How are we going to respond to Jesus? Are we going to accept him as the Lord of our lives? Are we going to submit to him as our king? Are we going to bury our old life in the waters of baptism that we might be raised to walk in newness of life? By God's grace, he's given us that opportunity. Not to be his enemies, but to be his children, his friends, his disciples. If you recognize today that you're not right with the Lord, that you haven't responded correctly to Jesus, that you're not continuing to respond day by day correctly to Jesus as your king, won't you make that right today? If there's anything that we can do to help you commit your life to the Lord for the first time or come back to him, won't you please let us know at this time as Rick leads us in a song.